All right. Well, hello, friends. So good to be with you. Uh, thanks for that round of applause. That was awesome. Uh, my question for you this morning is, have you ever had an experience that flipped your paradigm? Uh, an experience that changed the way that you viewed the world. Um, I think about uh, the, f- the first time I saw that flutter of a heartbeat on the sonogram. 173 beats per minute. I'm going to be a dad. Uh, I think about the moments when students come back from the first missions trip and they realize for the first time that these people who have so much less have so much more joy. These are experiences that I I call uh, paradigm-flipping experiences. They change the way that you see the world, and there's no unseeing it after you've seen it. I had one of these experiences back in March. Uh, My wife and I were in a season in which we were battling perpetual illness in our our two little kids. I've got Liam, he's two and a half, and Barrett, he's just uh, turned one. And it was like sickness after sickness. We cleaned vomit out of car seats so many times. We were just, we had a system. Like it happened and we were, okay, you do this, you do this, and we'd get it all cleaned up. Uh, Constant fevers and infections, and uh, we were run down. Uh, So on this particular night, my wife had taken a much-needed kind of night out with her friends uh, to go grab dinner, and I was at home uh, putting our our boys down. Uh, And as I'm uh, taking Liam up to his room and I'm putting him down, I realize he's he's running another fever. He is hot. Like, he is sweating. Uh, He is, like, moaning. He's lethargic. And all that he wants is to be held. And so here I am. Uh, in a moment of desperation, holding my two-year-old in his dinosaur pajamas, sitting in his race car bed, uh, where I make this kind of desperate prayer that I've, I've never prayed before. I said, Jesus, in your name, if there's anything that is causing this sickness, be gone. <laughs> kind of a weird prayer, but I was, I was desperate. And so as I go to put my son down, I, I step out of the room and my hand brushes across his forehead. It is cool to the touch. Like, that's, yeah, there you go. Weird. I'm like, so I start like feeling around his head. I'm like, where has the heat gone? Like, he's not sweaty anymore. He's not hot. Uh, my son, who could barely hold himself up, is jumping on his bed saying, Liam feels better. I don't have a box for this. I'm not one of these people. And so I run downstairs. I grab a thermometer. I stick it under his armpit. 97.3. That doesn't happen. For me, this was a a paradigm-flipping kind of reality. Because prior to this, I would have said, yes, you can know God. Yes, you can experience him. I've heard from him. Uh, Yes, I believe in evil in the abstract sense, but in the practical sense, like something that we experience, whew, Now, when we talk about this kind of stuff, us science-minded people, we get a little wonky uh, because there was a day and age in which uh, people blamed every sickness and illness and circumstance on demons and and tried to cast them out when there was very legitimate physical causes. I think we live in an age in which we've maybe swung to the other ditch, in which we try and treat everything as physical when maybe there's a spiritual reality behind it. Now, is it either or? No, I think it is a little bit of both. And so over the last year, I've tried to develop uh, through researching and reading and uh, studying God's word, a a biblical balanced approach that doesn't require us to run back to the stone ages. And as I have, I've discovered that I think spiritual warfare is a little more common than, than we've ever realized. 
And the good news is, is that we don't have to go into this battle unequipped. In fact, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at uh, the Apostle Paul, one of the early pioneers of the faith. Uh, As he's concluding this letter to the Ephesians, he gives them some real practical things that you and I can do uh, to prepare ourselves for this battle. And so today, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 6, and starting in verse 10. He writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when that day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand... Stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith from which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What an epic way to end a letter, isn't it? Isn't that awesome? So what Paul is doing in this, and we've seen this kind of week after week, is he uses the example of kind of a Roman soldier gearing up for battle. And he offers kind of a physical piece of armor and then its spiritual counterpart. Uh, And so last week, Seth Davidson, he talked about uh, the the belt of truth. And today we're going to be talking about the breastplate of righteousness. Now, we don't see people uh, dressed in kind of Roman armor anymore, so it's helpful to kind of look at this. Uh, If you can imagine engaging in battle, if you get a wound to the arm, you you probably live. You take a blow to the chest, it's fatal. So Paul's talking here with the the breastplate of righteousness, it's something that that protects our vital organs, this, this really important part of ourselves. And it's important to know that back in this day and age, people understood that the organs were the source of one's emotions. So in the same way that we talk about heart being the source of one's love and feelings, uh, they believed that the breastplate protected your, your vital organs, which were the source of your emotions. And so we talk about kind of the, the spiritual reality. What does the, the breastplate of righteousness protect us from? How does it protect our heart? Well, what can pierce us unlike any other? What can knock us to the ground? Shame. Shame. Now, shame is something that we don't often talk about, right? I mean, it it makes sense. We're ashamed of it. Uh, But I think it's something that we all experience, and it is something that isolates us. It's something that takes us out. Uh, Brene Brown, she's a shame researcher. You probably didn't know that was a thing. Uh, She defines shame this way. She said, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do that makes us unworthy of connection. Shame pierces us. And we experience shame, we do all kinds of things. We self-medicate, we isolate, we pretend, we cover up, we hide. Shame has the ability to take us out. Now, you may be wondering, what does shame have to do with spiritual warfare? And I'm so glad you asked, all of you. Uh, 
When you look throughout scripture, you see that Satan's playbook is twofold, and it's very simple. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Primarily, he works through tempting, uh, which is very simple. We experience this doing something that we don't want to do or, or failing to do something that we know we should do, whether that's participating in gossip when it's just so tempting uh, or failing to speak up when we know that we should. On the other hand, it is accusing, and this is maybe something that we're less familiar with, but uh, probably Satan's favorite technique. Uh, the name Satan actually comes from the Hebrew word Satan, which means uh, he who accuses or the accuser. So literally his identity, his role is to accuse us. And we see this all throughout scripture. Uh, we see this in Zechariah 3.1, uh, where we read, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan. What is he doing? He's standing at the right side to accuse him. Uh, we see this in the story of Job. Those of you that are familiar, Job, this righteous man, has everything stripped away from him as Satan attempts to accuse him and, and prove that he isn't really righteous. We see this in the book of Revelations. Uh, here we read, for the accusers, the, literally the Satan, of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. What keeps Satan busy day and night? Accusing heaping up shame, telling people that they're worthless, telling people that God couldn't love them. That's what he does. And so when we, I think it's important when we, when we talk about spiritual warfare and we talk about Satan, you know, sometimes we have this image of like, uh, it's two equal and opposite forces. Like there's God and then there's Satan. Uh, but that could not be farther from the truth. Uh, Satan is just a fallen angel uh, who leads a horde of other fallen angels. He can't be in more than one place at one time. He has none of the omnis. He's not omnipresent or omniscient. He's, he's just one being. So when we talk about spiritual warfare, we're, we're talking about Satan and kind of his hordes of fallen angels, which we would call, uh, or what the Bible would call, demons. And the primary way that they operate is, yes, sometimes physical ailments, yes, sometimes circumstances, uh, like we saw with, with my son Liam. But I think far often, it's through tempting and accusing. Through, through tempting and accusing. Um, and so when it, when it comes to this battle, it's, it's important to recognize uh, what are the lies that we're hearing. Um, at, I use this example kind of with my small group guys and it, it drives them crazy, but they kind of like it because I do this little, little dance when I do it. Uh, so with my junior guys, um, I say, this is effectively Satan's playbook. Uh, there's that thing that you know you shouldn't do or um, you're, you're feeling tempted to do and you hear that familiar voice of, come here, it's gonna be good. You're gonna like it. It's just once, come on, you've earned it. And we fall for it, we fall for it every time. And then the moment that we bite, the moment that we fall into it, he is waiting there to whack us over the head with shame, saying, how could you? God couldn't love you. Nobody would if they really knew you. And so we hear that familiar voice of, come on, just try it. We know that that shame is coming. And so that's kind of the way that I think he operates most effectively is, is through both tempting us and then on the other side of us, just whacking us over the head with shame. 
Now, at this point, you're either tracking with me and you're like, yes, this is my experience, or you're like, this guy is a little crazy, <laughs> probably. Uh, but what does that battle look like? I, I want to make this like a, a little bit more real for us. And so maybe you've had an experience where, where you've failed or you've fallen through or you've messed up, and you, you've thought something like this, I'm a failure. I'm worthless. Maybe even in, in, in the first person, I, I'm a bad mom. I'm a bad wife, a terrible friend, a bad dad. Nobody likes me. In a, in a moment of honesty, could show of hands, anybody ever heard those kind of thoughts before? Yes, look around, oh my goodness. What if those aren't our thoughts? Now, the, the slyness of the enemy is that it sounds like our thoughts, but look at the content of all those things that I just said. Those are accusations, aren't they? Almost as if we are accusing ourselves before God and before other people. Those are accusations. What if those aren't just our thoughts? What if that's spiritual warfare? You know, one of my, my favorite things to do uh, over the summer is I get to lead this thing called LTP. It's our summer internship. And uh, this year we've got 12 high school and college students that um, throughout the summer are diving into their faith and developing their leadership. And one thing that we get to hear every week is, is stories of transformation as, as students share their story and uh, kind of how they came to faith. Uh, and this last week, there was one that just will forever stick with me. Um, one of our, our junior girls, she was sharing uh, her story. And as she's sharing, I could not help but notice that her story was defined uh, by these lies that she had believed. Uh, it was far less even about her, but more so about like just the, the lies that she had believed. As she's sharing, she's sharing how uh, she felt worthless, how she felt like nobody wanted her, how even when she would try and force herself into a relationship, she would find out that they didn't want anything to do with her. So she felt like she had nothing to say, that she was unimportant. And uh, maybe the most uh, concrete example is she said, uh, you know when you're walking down a sidewalk and you can only fit two people? So if there's a third, there's somebody that has to kind of stand behind. She said, that's my life. I'm the person who never had a place up front. And as she's sharing these lies, blow after blow, I, my, my eyes are uh, welling up with tears. I'm ready to come to her defense. When suddenly, student after student begins speaking truth into those lies. You're not worthless, you're important. I couldn't imagine this summer without you. You belong, not only do you belong, but you create spaces for other people to belong. We love you. It was a truly powerful experience as these lies that had defined her life met truth in the form of community. I wonder how many of us have lives that have been defined by some of these lies. And I wonder how much more God wants to speak truth over those lies. And so as awesome as community is, and I think it's really important, that's why gathering in places like this and in small groups is really important, I think we can also become noticers of our thoughts. Because the battle really begins when we recognize that we are not our thoughts. 
You are not your thoughts. You can observe them, but you don't have to own them. And so a simple question that I like to ask is I'm, I'm hearing things like you're worthless, you'll never measure up, you're a failure, is I just ask a simple question. Is this something that Jesus would say to me? Is this something that Jesus would say about me? And if the answer is no, I can firmly say, well, this is maybe my voice or this is the enemy's voice. And in either case, I want to listen to, to God and what God has to say about me. And so as the enemy tries to heap up lie after lie, I can say, those sound like accusations. That's, that's not true about me. And they have no place to land. It's interesting to note that what, what Paul has been offering here, this practice of, of recognizing lies and speaking truth over them, is effectively what happens in many counseling sessions. Where over the, over the course of weeks and months, the counselor helps to identify those harmful thoughts and beliefs and behaviors that are, uh, that are rooted in a distortion of reality. And then they begin to replace those with thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors that are rooted in truth. It's all about identifying the lie and speaking truth into it. And so uh, if the language of spiritual warfare is kind of weird for you, like call it inner work, call it spiritual warfare, whatever, the work is largely the same to identify the lie and to speak truth into it. And so Paul says, as, as we enter into this battle, it's righteousness that protects us. It's righteousness that protects us. But what does that mean? I don't know if you're anything like me, but uh, so often there's these kind of churchy words that we nod to, but like uh, underlying it, there's a bit, a bit of fuzziness. And I think that's true of here. So what is the definition of this word righteousness? Um, the underlying Greek word, which I realize nobody can read Greek, uh, is dikaiosune, uh, which means um, the quality or characteristic of upright behavior, uprightness, and righteousness. That uh, means the quality, state, or practice of judicial responsibility with focus on fairness and equitableness. Or maybe one that summarizes this and that we've talked about a lot here, uh, it's to put in right relationship um, with God and with, what, with others. That's what the word righteousness means. And so when we talk about it, maybe to summarize all these, it's to be in right relationship with God uh, demonstrated by living a life of integrity and taking care of maybe the most vulnerable people in society. And so when we talk about righteousness, this is important, is there's both a, a judicial sense in which if you can imagine a court of law and you're standing before God and he says, you are right, your debt has been paid, you are, we are good, like just from a judicial sense, there's that sense of righteousness. And then on the other side of it, there's a practical sense of living a life of integrity, of walking away from sin, of being generous to the poor and the needy. There's kind of the practical lived out side of it. And what Paul's talking about here is both kind of that judicial sense of we're good and, and we live good. You are right and you live right. And this is where everything that we've been talking about this morning kind of comes together. You, you've made it. Like this, <laughs> this is the most important part. As we engage the battle of our minds, as Satan begins to, to lay those accusations on us, it's righteousness that protects us from shame. 
It's righteousness that protects us from shame. And it just makes sense. So, I mean, if you know that you're right with God, come whatever lies. You're worthless. You'll never make, make it. Uh, God couldn't love you. If you know that you're right with God, those things can't land. You're protected. And if you're living a life of integrity and doing everything that you know that you should, there's no accusations that can, that can puncture you because there's nothing that he can accuse you of. But what if you don't know where you stand with God? What if as you look at your life, you see a whole bunch of good intentions, but not always the ability to live it out? What if as you look at your life, you realize, I've, I've fallen short. I'm not righteous. What then? Let's take a look back at Ephesians 6 and verse 13. He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God. It's his armor. It's his righteousness. This is what makes Christianity unique over all the other world religions. That it's not about what we can do for God, but what God did for us. The unbelievable, unfathomable reality is that when you trust him, when you believe in Jesus, his perfect, spotless life, overflowing with love, free from sin, is applied to you. We don't have to wonder or worry about where we stand with God. We don't need archaic rites and rituals to please him. Because of the work that Jesus did on the cross, once and for all, we've been made right with God. Christ makes us right. And not only that, not only does Christ make us right, he keeps us right. Uh, when you become a Christian, when you believe in him, we believe that you are filled with his spirit, that he gives you the ability to live as he's called us to live. It's literally him inside of us that does it. Uh, as it's written in, in another place, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. He takes care of both the judicial sense and the practical sense, both being right and living right. You know, it was about uh, 10 years ago that a much younger me, uh, I am already young, but younger, <laughs> uh, walked into a church much like this uh, at the end of myself. You know, up until that point, I had uh, considered myself basically a good person. I tried to do more good things than bad things. But as I looked back at my life, I recognized that I had fallen pretty short. Here on the other side of a broken engagement, heartbroken, lonely, isolated, directionless, a pastor took the stage and began to explain the significance of communion. He began to explain that for th uh, thousands of years as Christians have gathered, we take bread and we break it and we dip it into the cup and we acknowledge that it, it was Jesus' blood shed for us, his body broken for us that makes us right with God. That it's his righteousness that we cling to and not our own. I'm gonna go ahead and invite the band back up and, and we're gonna sing a song that we sang at the beginning um, that I think takes on like much more significance with this as kind of a backdrop. And I, I love these lyrics. I, I would just like to, to read these over us. It says, there's a table that you've prepared for me. 
in the presence of my enemies. It's your body and your blood that you shed for me. This is how I fight my battles. Maybe for you, this is a a paradigm shift kind of moment where you recognize that you've been facing some battles, that you've been hearing these lies, that you're worthless, that you're a bad mom, that you're a bad dad. And all the while, you've been trying better, you've been mustering up, you've been saying tomorrow's gonna be different, holding on to your own tattered righteousness when Christ wants to offer you his righteousness. You don't have to worry, you don't have to worry about your good outweighing your bad, about where you stand. You can know once and for all that you are right with God. Maybe today, God wants to remove that weight of shame from you and wants to give you his righteousness. Friends, there is a table that has been prepared for you of his body and his blood shed for you. And so wherever you're at in your journey of faith today, I would love to give you the opportunity to respond for the first time, for the thousandth time. Uh, So here in a moment, we're gonna participate in communion. Uh, And if you're here for the first time, you're like, what did my friend invite me to? This is a little weird or a lot of weird. Uh, We want you to feel complete freedom just to stay right where you're at. But for anyone else that's interested in in claiming Christ's righteousness, I'm I'm gonna say a prayer I'd love for you to to say in the quiet of your own heart. Um, And then we're gonna come up, we have uh, communion kind of up here on the stage. Uh, You'll take the bread, dip it in the cup. We have some gluten-free options out in the atrium. And then as always, we have a team of people that's gonna be up here that would love to pray with you. Uh, If you've made some kind of commitment of faith or you just need to get something off of your chest, Um, This is a a time for you and we want to make that available. So if you guys would uh, pray with me in the quiet of your hearts. Father, we thank you that there is a table that you've prepared for us. God, if we were to be really honest, as we look back at our life, there there were just tons of good intentions, but we just don't always have the ability to live those things out. And you saw that and you did something about it. You didn't leave us on our own. You left heaven, you came and you died for us. So we just acknowledge that sacrifice, that it costs nothing less than your body and your blood shed for us. And so God, for the first time, for the thousandth time, we we just acknowledge that we need you. Holy Spirit, would you fill us from our head to our toe? Would you give us the ability both to desire the things that you like and to live those things out? We can't do it without you. We give you this time. It's your son's holy and precious and mighty name that we pray. Amen.